Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Halloween. October 31st, 2019. Wow. You really reached for it on that one. <laughs> nice. Like Leaned into it. Change their Twitter bios <laughs> with like these weird Halloween. Halloween edition. Uh, I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscure. I don't really like Halloween at all. I have no interest in it. But It's raining here, which is not good for trick-or-treaters. That's Emily Bazelon uh, of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily from New Haven. Hello. And then next to me, we're it's throwback Thursday because it's super sweaty, and John and I are in a studio, and it's unbelievably hot, even though it's l- the end of October. John Dickerson of CBS's. 60 minutes. Hello, John Dickerson. Uh, hello, David. It's it's great to be in this sweat lodge with you. Oh, God. <laughs> it's terrible. That's, ugh, On you guys look cute, even Gabfest. if you are miserable. Oh, Thank you. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> On today's Gabfest, <laughs> we will talk about... Im- so easily plied with a compliment. <laughs> we will talk about impeachment. We're going to talk about the, the House voting on the procedural rules for the ongoing impeachment investigation, uh, the voting that's happening as we tape. Then Twitter is banning all political ads, all campaign ads, all issue ads. Is that the right thing to do or is it superficial? Then the appalling revenge porn slash workplace sexual misbehavior incident episode that brought down Democratic Congresswoman Katie Hill. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. As we're taping, the House of Representatives has just finished a procedural vote on its ongoing impeachment investigation, a vote that will set the rules, the procedures for the investigation as it continues in the House. And indeed, a Democratic-controlled House has, by a vote of 232 to 196, voted to approve these procedures. 
every Democrat but two voted in favor, two voted nay, and I think one abstained. Every Republican but three voted against it, three abstained. So it was a very partisan division. John, should we be surprised that the parties held and that Republicans didn't break ranks at all? I, I uh, No, I don't think we should be surprised, but... Um we should note that 31 Democrats voted to uh, in the basically the equivalent vote in 1998 with Bill Clinton. So 31 Democrats voted to to um, go forward with impeachment proceedings. You know, I, just a few things we're stating. The Republicans have been calling for a transparent, open process that uh, has a vote. Well, now they've gotten what they called for. They've said uh, they've they've moved the goalposts, um, saying that what happened, what preceded it, makes the whole business. Um, Unfair, and that fruit uh, of the poison tree. Right, exactly. There's Dare I say it? fruit of the poison tree, and they've also argued that the rules, as the House uh, majority set them up, which is perfectly in keeping with tradition and with the 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 um, process, um, that the rules are unfair to Republicans. You know, the, I think that my from my conversations with the Republicans on the Hill, they feel like that um, they did gain and that they have seen uh, more support for the president in the last few days or so because the argument that the Democrats were being unfair from a process standpoint was at least causing more vocal response from uh, some portion of the Republican base. Why does that matter? Because lawmakers take that into account. So they're going to stick with this process argument. I guess what I wonder is now when these pretty compelling voices come forward, um, these career officials, you know, whether those voices, what they look like now when they're going to be live and in color, um, I, I'm not sure I will. Uh, I mean, these these hearings are going to be a, a total circus, no matter what. Um, Maybe they should do them in black and white. That would create even more dignity. Mm. Emily, what, uh, broadly speaking, has the House just approved? What what is the What are the outlines of the procedures that they're going to pursue as they move this this impeachment investigation from the private circle, this narrow private circle, to a more broader public forum? There will be public hearings. The president's lawyers will be able to cross-examine witnesses. There will be a procedure where Republican members of the committees can ask to call their own witnesses, and there will be votes on those um, requests. The Democrats on the committee will still control the outcome because they have more um, votes in the committees because they're the majority in Congress. But uh, there will be a kind of back and forth and a building of the record, and it will happen out in the open, and it will be challengeable. So in my view, it looks solid. It has fundamental elements of due process uh, that we care about and want to see. And a lot of what the Republicans have been asking for. So I think it will be hard for them to keep complaining about process, though I'm sure, as John pointed out, they will try. I mean, we've already had these completely ludicrous metaphors like talking about, you know, declaring a mistrial from the Republican majority leader in the or whatever, the head of the Republicans in the House, Kevin McCarthy, whatever his title is. So, you know, there's already been just such a perversion of these terms getting thrown around that I don't have a lot of faith that we won't continue to hear that rhetoric. But the public's going to be able to see these people talk and assess their credibility. What was it, John, that made Democrats willing to take this vote. They had been resistant for a while. I think there was a cadre of 
House members who presumably didn't want to take this vote because they felt it would be damaging, but something changed. What is it that changed? Well, I think it's been a rolling um, uh, things set of things that have changed. I think the original transcript that um, we learned this week might have been, uh, and, and to call it a transcript is to fall into uh, a, to a mistake at the get-go. So to, to the summary of the phone call, um, that that, I think, was the first thing that pushed a lot of those reluctant Democrats into at least being for an inquiry. I think what moved the the um, the speaker to have a formal vote, I think, is a kind of combination of things. One is the testimony from people like Bill Taylor, who was the uh, top U.S. person in the embassy in Ukraine, um, which have been uh, compelling. The way in which what has leaked from the closed-door sessions has established a fact pattern and a storyline that seems to make this look like a serious thing worth investigating. And then I think also probably some pressure uh, on Pelosi that these process arguments um, are having a little purchase and that they might as well go ahead because that's where they were inevitably going to end up anyway. Do either of you guys think these process objections will survive, persist, thrive in the new uh, now approved procedures. I think what we're moving to in terms of the political debate is going to be that Trump did nothing important wrong. That yep. uh, it's going to be about that question because there's just not going to really be anything else. And then you have this question of like, is this really bad? So I was thinking about analogies to Watergate. In Watergate, you have Nixon implicated in a break-in, which is like a crime, right, into, uh, you know, Democratic headquarters office at the Watergate. And what we have here is the president using the might of his office abroad to try to ask a foreign power to do something scurrilous. So is that equivalent? Is it better? Is it worse? It's yeah. worse. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things, the, the challenges is for whoever the <laughs> leader of, I mean, this is a challenge of modernity, but it seems to me a p- particular challenge for Democrats is to is to set the problem at the beginning. You know, that's what you have to do in any c- case, but is to argue, as Emily was just doing, basically saying, Here's what we're trying to figure out. Did the president use the government and the whole arm of government, not only his power on a phone call, but also the ambassador to Ukraine, his entire national security apparatus, and then build a second apparatus outside of that for personal political gain? That's one question. The other is, did he warp U.S. policy towards Ukraine for personal political gain? That's another separate category, which is important. Did he irrevocably warp U.S. policymaking by creating what Bill Taylor called the irregular channel, which has its own set of problems, which is not only related to Ukraine, but also all the other ways in which the president used an irregular process for his own personal impulses, which have national security implications. Then you have to figure out whether he has obstructed or shredded or caused to shred important U.S. values in the context of defending himself. So, for example, this week we had Alexander. Alexander Vindman, who is an army lieutenant colonel who uh, still carries shrapnel in him from an, uh, from an improvised explosive device from Iraq, who in the defense of the president, some of his allies basically said had dual loyalties. He is literally a poster child for the American uh, idea, which is that no matter where you were born, you can dedicate your life as an immigrant to that idea. Why is he a poster child? Because Ken Burns made a movie about that in which he used as characters in the movie two young 
children. One of them was Alexander Vindman and the other was his brother. He's literally the poster child of a thing that used to be the central argument of Ronald Reagan's version of America, which is that it is such a powerful ideal that people can come and dedicate their lives in the service of that country based on the strength of that idea. That this week was shredded in the defense of the president. So what other things have been shredded along the way in defense of the president? And then finally, you have the denigration of the Foreign Service, which has been a part of this, which is, in other words, to call people who've dedicated their lives to foreign service for the country as never Trumpers or as deep staters or some other thing. Those are kind of the main points. And somebody who articulates that originally and basically tries to pull all those threads you were talking about, Emily, always back to those central questions. And by the way, the answer to those questions can be no, the president's exonerated, off we go. But just keeping the conversation focused in the modern age of attention shredding seems to me to be basically the biggest task here in the next week. And that's a that was very well articulated, John. When you Agreed. put it that way, I'm like, wow, that guy should be impeached. I, Emily, I have actually have a, a legalistic line of inquiry here, which is so far uh, the president has announced he would not cooperate. They are not many of the people who ought to be testifying have declined to testify. They're not turning over documents. They're not complying with subpoenas. It looks like that's going to continue. I mean, there's still people testifying. The civil service professionals and military officers are coming to testify, but it looks like the president is not going to let any key people who are who might have something uh, dastardly to say come and actually give sworn testimony, and they're not going to provide any documentation when they don't have to. Is there any compulsion that is now going to work? There's always been this theory that, well, in impeachment, they've got to provide these documents. But is are they actually going to have to provide them? Is the Supreme Court going to push in quickly enough to, to, to compel that? Would the Supreme Court even compel it? Oh, I am so happy you asked me this because I'm working on a piece for the Times Magazine as we speak that will go online next week that like tries to delve into these questions. So I actually know the answer, or at least I have ideas. And I have ideas about the history of the answer, too. So the Supreme Court has never been asked uh, what to do in a case that pits executive privilege, in other words, a, cr- a claim by the president that you can't turn over documents, you can't let witnesses testify because they fall within this zone of like presidential, confidential communications that's untouchable. That's executive privilege. The Supreme Court has never decided between executive privilege and a congressional subpoena in an impeachment inquiry, in any kind of inquiry. They've just never been asked the question or answered it. So we are in uncharted territory. We actually only have a handful of lower court opinions about this question, and they don't settle the matter because they're not about exactly the same scenario. They're pretty fact-specific. And I think only one of them from the Nixon era is actually about the president, him or herself. So the reason that you are seeing Congress proceed with the career professionals John was talking about is that those are the willing witnesses. And there's nothing that we see in the the sort of case law that suggests that willing witnesses who have congressional subpoenas in hand may not testify. Courts have never said that. You asked a different question, an unwilling witness, a top political official like um, Mike Pompeo or Rudy Giuliani, who, of course, is not an actual official but is a senior figure in all of this. Those people are unwilling witnesses. They're saying we don't care about your subpoena, Congress, and they have on their side – 
direct order from the White House counsel that's supposed to apply to everyone not to testify. But what's been totally fascinating is that that direct order from the White House counsel also applies to all these people who have decided to testify. And so even though there's no reason why this congressional subpoena is somehow more legally powerful than a direct order effectively from your boss, these people are coming forward anyway. There is this is how gonna, can there think, possibly um, be a legitimate how could any court look at that direct order and say we have directly ordered essentially everyone who works in this administration not to comply with congressional request to talk and and how could the court honor that and say oh that's legit that really is a fair claim of executive privilege that's absurd yeah, it's very blanket. I mean, you can also see it as an opening gambit, right? It challenges yeah, the whole yeah. legitimacy of Congress investigating as opposed to a specific act. And I am now channeling Josh Chaffetz, a law professor mm-hmm. at um, Cornell, who I've been talking with this week. So I don't think that that order from the White House counsel, Len Cipollone, is uh, going to hold. But you could still have a lot of fighting in court about the specifics of executive privilege. And I, it's been interesting. A lot of the witnesses who've appeared have noted along the way that they have not had direct communications with the president. And I think that's deliberate. It's to suggest that this broad executive privilege claim doesn't apply to them. What's happened in the last decade in both the George W. Bush and the Obama administrations was that there was White House balking and stonewalling over congressional subpoenas, not involving the president. The first case has to do with Harriet Myers and Josh Bolton, who were top aides to Bush. The second case, in a much more limited way, was the Obama Justice Department over the Fast and Furious operation, this like anti-gun trafficking operation in the Justice Department that kind of went awry. So they had these long court fights over executive privilege and the power of the subpoena. And basically what Congress learned is that, as Josh put it to me, they can um, lose by winning. And what I mean by that is that the delay of all the court proceedings and all the discussion among the judges, plus the reluctance of the judges to like decide the questions because this is an interbranch struggle, all of that just plays into the hands of the executive because delay supports the status quo, which is not turning stuff over. Um, and so it just like Peter, the political momentum peters out. And so Adam Schiff, who, of course, is running the um, impeachment inquiry for the House Democrats, said this week, we're not going to get into a lengthy rope-a-dope game in the courts over this stuff. And that's why the Democrats haven't gone to court to challenge Pompeo and Giuliani and all the folks who are not complying with the subpoenas. But... There's this guy, Charles Cooperman, who is a top advisor to John Bolton, Trump's erstwhile national security advisor. And Cooperman has gone to court. And what he has said plaintively Hmm. and correctly is like, I'm facing these competing demands from the executive and legislative branches. I can't satisfy both of them. What am I supposed to do here? That's a very novel kind of lawsuit. He sued Congress and the executive branch. We don't know what's going to happen with that. But his lawyer, who's a longtime Republican figure in all of this, Chuck Cooper, is also John Bolton's lawyer. And Bolton has said he's not going to show up voluntarily, but kind of invited a subpoena from Congress. And so now we're going to see with those two witnesses um, what does happen in court. And I would say the kind of nightmare scenario is the Supreme Court reaches out for this case and then shuts down willing witness testimony and reduces the power of the congressional subpoena. And I think that would be bad for this impeachment inquiry, which should proceed with information from government witnesses who are not in. We should have some zone of candor and confidentiality for the presidency, by all means, but it should not extend to everybody who works in the executive branch. 
But also, it would be really bad going forward. It's kind of been useful that we haven't had this question settled. And if the Supreme Court settles in a bad way, that is going to be unfortunate, highly unfortunate. So ends Impeachment Law Minute. Yeah. Emily Bathlon. That <laughs> or was maybe awesome, more like three Impeachment Law, minutes. seven I'm minutes. sorry. <laughs> no, that was fantastic. John, actually, I want to jump on that to a kind of a timing question, which is, so what do you think the likely or what, what, are, the, what are the possible variables about how this proceeds? Yeah. Who wants it to go fast? Yeah. How, who wants it to go slow? What, I, what, what, what could happen? I don't know. I think it depends on how it, care, how it plays out. If it is a uh, – so let's think through some of the permutations here. If it is like the previous congressional hearings that we've seen where it's just a chaos madness fest where both uh, the opposition party – is encouraged to just kind of throw up gorilla dust and keep everything confusing and go down side roads and talk about servers in Ukraine and talk about Benghazi and do anything to create a um, uh, increase the number of threads, whether they're real threads or synthetic ones. And then you have the majority whose job should be to stay focused on points one through five and continually go back to them and say, we're trying in this set of questions to get at this question one, two, or four, whichever they choose, and not try to build their own reputations by being fancy with their questions or their statements or being outraged or doing all the other things that detract from the central case, depending on how much of that goes on, would depend on how uh, helpful this is or not. I mean, if it if it goes well and orderly, then it's an orderly case against the president, which maybe doesn't get him impeached in a Republican Senate, but which creates the conditions for um, uh, the election. If it's a total chaos nightmare um, for the Democrats in which they act as a disorganized party, which is almost in the part of Democratic DNA code, then it becomes something where the president says, and this is in line with his uh, ad campaign that ran during the pre- during the um, World Series, yeah, you know, he does some un- un- um, uncouth stuff and he's a little rough around the edges, but, you know, he gets the job done. Uh, now, nevertheless, n- never mind what the job was in this case, because in this case it was to countervene American uh, foreign policy views in the furtherance of his campaign. Never mind all that. It'll, it'll, um, you know, the president will be able to sort of use the con- the confusion or the lack of sufficient evidence to say, look, these guys are just sitting here doing nothing, and at least I'm getting I'm, I'm getting things done. I want to just say w- three other quick things that are um, worth keeping in mind. Andrew Johnson, when we think about the what people get impeached for, um, two of the articles against him, one was making three speeches with the intent uh, to attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States. And then the next one after that was bringing disgrace and ridicule to the presidency by his aforementioned words and actions. So essentially, Andrew Johnson, two of the articles against him were for being a big mouth, um, which is uh, just an important little historic reminder that when it's a partisan process, the partisan um, the partisans can make the, 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 the articles of impeachment whatever they want. The problem with that is it's got to survive in the Senate. What might happen in the Senate? I was talking to some senators on the Republican side yesterday who said there is a movement from some of their members to try to vote to uh, immediately dismiss it um, once there's a so have a motion dismiss at the beginning once this gets to the Senate as it's likely and they all assume it will. Robert Byrd, the master of the Senate, self-proclaimed, 
actually uh, brought up a motion to dismiss with Clinton in 1998. And if you go back and read what the House impeachment managers said at the time about the motion to dismiss was they basically said this would be a a, a total abrogation of the Senate tradition and history. So we're going to have that repeated one more time here as we um, as we go forward. You just know, I have parties. a hole in my memory. What happened in the Senate in the Bill Clinton impeachment trial? They basically, well, D- David will correct me here, but basically tr- um, Trent Lott and um, uh, Ted Kennedy put together a deal. Basically, they were they all were like, look, we're not going to convict him. But the Republicans had to do, they, they felt like they couldn't just say, oh, thanks, House managers, you did a nice job, but we're going to we're going to dismiss this because it doesn't uh, hold up and we're, you're, we're never going to get the votes. You're never going to get the votes anyway. We have to do basically the minimum to show that we take this seriously and that we care about the work that you did. But that's going to leave no um, kind of foolishness and loose ends that will let this get out of our control. So basically, Lott and Kennedy came up with I'm going on. This is all from memory. But Lott and Kennedy basically came up with an agreement to limit debate to a certain number of hours. They went and did the debate, and then they had the predictable vote that they were going to. Um, you was, know, you know, they limited. It was a majority. Like major, but there was a majority for several. No, they. There was some evidence. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There was evidence. Uh, there was evidence, and there was. Uh, uh, you know, they went through the proper procedure, but they put a time limit on it. Um, and, and it was a relatively sh- – it wasn't super, super long. Yeah. The, it was about 10 days, I think. And the vote – the vote was a majority vote to convict, but it wasn't a super majority needed. Right. Right. I on just – a couple of I, – I, The reason I was thinking about this is that it's important to remember that the impeachment inquiry in the House is not actually the trial. So, right, right. like totally. Trump is getting a lot of due process for what is essentially like the building of the case for indictment. I mean, it's not a perfect parallel to the criminal process, but there are these two steps in the actual trial part, which is where in a criminal case, most procedural rights attach is not even until you get yeah. to the Senate. And two other things that I was reminded of by uh, someone in the Hill yesterday is one, during the um, trial, you cannot have a BlackBerry or an iPhone. It was Blackberries back in 98, I guess. Um, so they got to sit there and listen, all the jurors. Um, and they're not allowed to talk to each other. And Rehnquist was pretty strict about that. So um, having the senators focus for that long length of time and not be able to talk is uh, going to be a strain <laughs> strain on the body. Um on, on its own, but it'll be uh, it'll be really interesting to see if it gets to the Senate w- how that motion uh, to dismiss go- works because it was um, it obviously wasn't successful in 1998, but surely somebody will try to gain a few news cycles out of uh, out of that and oh advance for it sure, and then we'll s- watch yeah. Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and one or two other poor souls be hung up to dry and go through some long anguish, especially Susan Collins, in which in the end she does whatever's politically expedient for her to do. One thing to watch out for is there's this Kentucky gubernatorial election next week. Whenever That's when the elections are, right? Elections are next week. Yeah, Tuesday. And the incumbent governor is incredibly unpopular Republican, Matt Bevin, and he's running against a Democrat who is just focusing on state issues and the unpopularity of the governor. Governor and Bevin is trying to make it about impeachment. Bevin is trying to nationalize the election, make it not about Kentucky, make it about make it about Democrats is trying to impeach the president. And um, it'll be interesting if if Bevin pulls it off. I bet that will embolden Republicans, at least in in very red states, that in certain places is going to be a winning issue. I, I want to end. Actually, we haven't really talked about the substance of a lot of the testimony that came out this week. I had a 
I, I want to leave you guys with a question, which is, is it now possible for Trump or another president to do something like this again, as he did with Ukraine? So Definitely. we have now signaled to foreign governments, we will help you if you do our domestic political bidding. Like that, that if, you do, if you do something to help me, we will help you. That Trump has sent that as a, like the strongest possible signal that is now out there to the world. But on the other hand, you can imagine that if we suddenly see the government of Uzbekistan announcing an inquiry into Elizabeth Warren's investment in, in Uzbeki uh, mining companies, that people are going to say, oh, this is just a dirty trick. This is, this is, this is a false flag. And, and so it will never be trusted. So it, is, has Trump put himself in a position where he's going to get more of these or that he can no longer do it? Which, which is it likely to be? I think that in the medium to long term, if we don't make a big, clear declaration that this is not okay, it's not consistent with our values, as Trump's new uh, Russia ambassador and pointy (laughs) said, I believe, on the Hill, that we are going to get more of this. It will be behind the scenes. It will be uh, corrupt. And it will continue because we are – a huge power and people want to deal with us. And, you know, one of the defenses of Trump is going to be that quid pro quos happen all the time in American government. Of course, we're trading things for other things. What we have to keep our eye on the ball is that that does not mean that the president gets to use the might of the entire government to further his own political, personal interests by digging up dirt on his political opponent. Like, that's the part that's not okay. Well, that's that's exactly right. Is that the it's means and ends. I mean, um, so what always happens is people who are in trouble on the ends front say, but previous presidents have said things that are untrue. Okay, but previous presidents have said things that are untrue in the furtherance of something that is at least attached in some way to an American value or that is in the furtherance of something that is can be nominally put in the category of uh, the jobs that uh, the job that a president should do. In this case, um, it's using that that technique. And by the way, as we all know, the quid pro quo is only one part of this and isn't necessary for um, uh, to make the case that the president has has um, bent the foreign policy process in his um, in his White House in a way that's objectionable. But you're exactly right. If you're going to use the the tools of statecraft, you have to use them for the state and not for yourself. Hey, GapFest listeners, remember, we are going to be live at the Fox Theater in Oakland, California on Wednesdays, December 18th for our annual conundrum show. For tickets, information, go to slate.com slash live. There's still tickets available. We really want to see you there. That is going to be a delightful, delightful live show. And we also want to collect your conundrum. So tweet to us at SlateGapFest with a hashtag conundrum. Or go to slate.com slash conundrum and submit your conundrum there. Uh, But really, it's a glorious night. Um, You will learn a lot about the failings in uh, in our character, probably, mostly. Uh, (laughs) But you'll also, it will be be a laugh riot. Go to slate.com slash live, Wednesday, December 18th, Fox Theater in Oakland. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. 
We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. In a series of tweets on Wednesday, Jack Dorsey, the leader of Twitter, announced that Twitter would stop allowing political advertising or issue advertising about politically contentious issues. This, of course, is in stark contrast to our friends at Facebook, whose CEO Mark Zuckerberg said last week that Facebook would even accept political ads that are lies, that would not fact check lying political ads, and would gladly accept all sorts of political ads from whoever wanted to do it, from any candidate that wanted to do it. And YouTube, too, which also accepts a lot of political advertising. So, Emily, is it a big deal that Twitter is turning down these ads? It is an infinitesimally small amount of money that is at stake for Twitter. It is not a big platform for political advertising. It's more about the debate among the social media platforms and among all of us about what we think the standard should be than it is about the practical import of Twitter running political ads. I mean, Facebook just has such a giant footprint in this world because of Facebook itself and then also because it um, owns Instagram and WhatsApp. You know, Jack Dorsey, as like a million people pointed out immediately, was basically subtweeting Mark Zuckerberg um, and getting a lot of praise quickly online from people who are concerned about false political advertising. I think a lot of us tend to see this through the lens of Donald Trump because the Trump um, campaign is running already a false ad about Joe Biden. And so it just seems like that is a threat. There's a counter argument about the way in which political ads, especially issue ads, can be very helpful for groups on the left and the right that are getting started, a way of galvanizing people, of making campaigns come together. You know, other candidates in the Democratic field like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have seen their support really grow in part because of support and, you know, kind of avalanche of attention on platforms like Twitter. So it's not that this is like absolutely a slam dunk thing that's the right thing to do, but this problem of false information about elections and the way in which disinformation is destabilizing people's faith in the media, all kinds of media, traditional and social media, that debate is really important for us to be having. So I'm glad for that reason that Twitter is taking a different position and just making us all think about this. One of the things that I find bizarre about this, John, is that the if if the, the the premise of it is essentially that political ads are lies, because if all political ads were in fact truthful ads, everyone no, I don't think I that's think right. it is. I do think that's the premise of it. I think the premise is that some of them are lies, and Twitter was saying we can't police. We don't want to get in there and decide which is which. Right, but so it's essentially saying we rather right. than like having that's the other option, rather than having speech, rather than having speech, including what we all recognize are legitimate, um, legitimate uh, discussions of political issues and framings of political issues, so that candidates can make their point about who they are. It is safer. It better for the public health, for hygiene, for political hygiene, for there to be not this discussion at all, for the discussion to, to, to have to, to take place in other ways, which I, I, as a matter of public health, as a matter of epidemiology, I think is probably correct. But it is, it's, it's a little bit disconcerting for us to 
kind of collectively agree that that the health of the com- country is better off if speech is limited in this way. Well, remember, we're talking about the reach of paid speech, right. not speech at all, right? I feel yes. like that's an important but, distinction totally. to keep in mind. Yes. John, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Well, that, no, that was actually just the point I was going to make, is the argument is that, that um, reach should be earned and not paid for. I wonder if there's a hazard in that, which is to suggest then that anything that has reach has some kind of value um, because uh, because it it, it actually it absolutely doesn't have that. And and if we go all the way back to the beginning of our constitutional uh, uh, experiment, um, the idea of something that gains reach through popular passions is actually to be feared. Um, So that part of it's a little tricky Yeah, to jump in there. I think that would be an easier point to make if Twitter itself wasn't such a, a atrocious <laughs> ecosystem where people are able to gain reach through yeah. all kinds of dark methods, you know, using robots, using fake personalities, using, you know, some kind of baleful, completely mysterious foreign influence, at least with money. The money, it's money, it's it's pretty tan- transparent. I mean, I think a, an alt, another solution to this might be Twitter will allow political ads, but it, the kind of, they have to be, the tweets have to be super labeled. It's like, here's how much it costs, or here's, you know, here's who this is targeted at. So it's very evident what's going on. But instead, what's happening is you have this ecosystem where there's all sorts of disgusting, hostile stuff where, you know, white nationalists are allowed to flourish, where anti-Semitism is allowed to flourish, where all kinds of mysterious, trollish foreign interference is allowed to flourish. And that's okay, because that's somehow like legitimate grassroots speech happening, but this purchase speech is not allowed to happen. Again, I don't know that it's, I'm not saying that that the solution is the wrong solution. It's just, it it doesn't really solve the problem that we have, which is that Twitter and Facebook are are, uh, poisonous garbage piles for destroying political debate and discussion. I like the uh, Emily's framing that this is best to be thought of as a chess move and an ongoing act of competition between social media companies. Uh, and that uh, Jack Dorsey said in his long uh, Twitter thread we're wor- uh, that it was hypocritical to say we're working hard to stop people from gaming our systems to spread misleading information. But if someone pays us to target and force people to see it, well, then they can say whatever they want. I think that's a nice thing to call out. But I think to your point, David, that the, the problem is that anybody will think that this actually gets at the root of the problem. It is a, um, a kind of uh, perhaps good thing, although we've talked about how it may in fact have backfire effects, but whether it's good or backfires, it's really not, it doesn't feel like it gets at the core core thing. One thing I wonder for either one of the two of you is if you are a low information voter who's going to be influenced by a political I am. ad. I am a low information <laughs> voter. If you're going to be influenced by a political ad, and there's some problem with, with this question, but anyway, stick with me. If you're going to be influenced by a political ad and therefore it should be taken away from a thing that conveys value because of its reach, aren't you going to be swayed by some other thing pretty quickly and easily? And therefore, the actual effect of doing this is really not going to change the actual environment. Yeah, I think that it will have a small effect overall. That doesn't mean it's okay to take money as a company for lying political advertisements, but it's not an overall solution. I mean, I think what you're putting your finger on is this fundamental challenge of creating a method of incredibly effective communication in terms of transmitting, you know, messages and ideas over these huge networks, but then having a problem of just being 
a, a completely overrun in low quality or false information. Like what happens when the way in which speech is suppressed is that there's so much terrible speech that you don't know what to trust anymore and the true speech, true in any kind, just gets like completely overcome by that dynamic. We haven't faced up to that or and we're just starting to have a conversation about it because it's antithetical to how we think about our First Amendment. We imagine still this marketplace of ideas in which the good ideas triumph in the end, not one in which the sludge buries anything decent beneath it. By the way, if people are concerned about the about Donald Trump um, and, and his ability to kind of hoodwink people into voting for him again, which I think is implicit in some of the applauding for Twitter and some of the efforts to kind of um, try to sanitize what's a, um, a you know, a uh, bilge-filled um, venue. If you look at the 30-second ad that the Trump campaign bought during the World Series on uh, Wednesday night, you will see a far more powerful and effective ad. Um, it was a good ad. It was a really good ad, and it's going for the voters they need. It I was didn't essentially, see it. What was it? Um, basically, the president touting with you know the traditionally um, uh, massaged figures, but the, the economy. He um, created yeah. six million new jobs, right, exactly. five hundred thousand manufacturing jobs. We he smashed ISIS. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 your. T- Typical political ad, which isn't to say that it's true, but it um, uh, and then it has a line in which it says he's no Mr. Nice Guy, but sometimes it takes a Donald Trump to change Washington. It also obviously has the al-Baghdadi news in it, which is of the moment. Um, and this is aimed right at those, you know, suburban voters um, and basically saying trying to put in a category all of his uh, downsides into the basket of, oh, well, he's no Mr. Nice Guy, but he gets the job done. That will be the bigger, more effective thing than than uh, than the kinds of ads that are being um, taken off Twitter, I would guess. I'm, I feel I can feel myself getting out on the end of a limb there, but uh, who knows? But it, it, I mean, I think one of I think the kind of the most powerful that's legit, right? Like that's his pitch for his, right. that's Trump's pitch. Right. And like people should hear it and decide what they think about but, it. But I think the the more the thing about the, these Facebook and social media ads, and we've heard this about Facebook, and I'm not enough of a Facebook customer to know this, is that what you have is these tiny micro ecosystems, each of which is getting its own targeted Facebook ad right. aimed at the the susceptibilities of the people who happen to be interested in those subjects. And, and some and those of them may are be, about suppressing the vote. And right. some of those may be incredibly effective, but it's almost that there are too many of them for us to know whether they're what's what's happening what's going on do you think emily just switching well, and also sorry can i say one more thing about this and also to piggyback onto that there's the problem of how watching the political ads the paid for reach could affect your personal algorithm so then other garbage comes in that's not paid for because of your interest in the political ads or just the fact that you clicked on them emily actually while we're here uh, around facebook do, let's just talk about their contrasting approach. And there was a very interesting story this week. Facebook had said, Mark Zuckerberg had said in response to questioning from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, effectively, yes, you, a political candidate can lie in an ad. We're not going to stop them. That That is, we are, they are, have essentially unlimited speech rights to say whatever they want in an ad that they're paying for on our platform. And so we ha- now have this episode where a man in California named Adriel Hampton set out to create a bunch of dishonest ads uh, attacking certain Republican candidates. Facebook dinged him saying he wasn't a candidate himself, so he couldn't 
those ads were not allowed to get through. Then he made himself a candidate. He put himself on the ballot mm-hmm. to run for governor in California to create dishonest ads. And Facebook is stopping him from creating lying ads, essentially saying, well, he announced that he's going to lie so we can stop those ads. So you're only allowed to create lying ads if you don't say that you're lying about them. Do you think that the Facebook position, which is that all ads can, all candidate ads can say whatever the hell they want, regardless of truth value, is going to hold? No, for precisely the reasons you were just laying out. I mean, look, the fundamental problem here is that we are relying on a company to regulate our speech. And, like, this is not (laughs) going to work. Like, where is the FCC in all of this setting rules? We have some constitutional law. It's sort of dimming, but it still remains that commercial speech, in other words, paid-for speech, has less value than other kinds of speech. There is a way in which the government could be setting some limits on whether political advertising can be utterly false. But leaving it up to a corporation means that you're having these judgment calls that immediately kind of eat away at the edges of the rule that you just set. And then the rule becomes sort of permeable um, and isn't right. Like part of Zuckerberg's justification is we don't want to be in the business of telling you what you can see and what you what who can influence you but like yes they are setting limits can i just go back to one thing which uh, we've talked about before but which uh, emily when you were talking about the you know the conditions the laboratory conditions in which we would best hope to allow voters a chance to apply their reason uh towards the facts of the case and therefore pick the best candidate um I'm influenced by the enigma of reason, the recent book that um, basically argues that that we misunderstand reason, that basically what reason is for is to justify ourselves and then and then explain our justifications to other people that basically we're we're all just huge post hoc rationalizers and that we do what we do and we've we are attracted to what we're attracted to. And then we use our reason to claim to to construct something that makes us basically be able to look at ourselves in the mirror or or go to sleep at night. And if that's the way we use reason then we're trying to create a laboratory here in which none of us really want to go in. Not because what's in the laboratory isn't pristine and perfect, but it's because we're just not interested in that game. That game being the application of reason towards facts to make a decision uh, that's the best for mankind. So if that's true, then then that again sort of blinds us from understanding how these social media networks work and how traditional advertising works and how political speech works. But if that's true, then don't you want checks and balances and and to be reined in, right? I mean, that's an argument basically like the human id is – destructive. And we have lots of rules in society that try to prevent the human id in its completely fully realized form from running everything. Yes, yes. So this is just one more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean I didn't mean to suggest throw our hands up. What can you do? Your narrative is your narrative. My narrative is my narrative. I guess what I meant was, is there a smarter way? If you recognize the fact that reason is about post hoc rationalizations, then um, how do you attack that problem? Uh, where do you attack that problem? And and it's just, I guess, my well, th- that question, and therefore, then, how does this move get at that problem, which it seems to me is the much bigger problem in a in a society that tries to take collective action to meet the challenges of the day. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and it reminds we should bring we should say it's always important to say that whatever's happening on social media relates to and is less important than what's happening on television. Still, mm-hmm. like that's how so many voters take in their information. Um, it's it's just a mistake to leave that out of the conversation. And television has its own ways of manipulating emotions, etc. And now we get into this question of like, how do you inoculate people against false messages? There's some research that suggests that if you tell them beforehand, like, hey, someone's going to tell you climate change is a hoax and they're telling you that because they have their own agenda, that can be helpful. Final point is the the problem. You're exactly right about television and the reach. And and one of the other problems of classification here is we tend to see the world through Twitter. But man, it's amazing how much social media affects the decision uh, made in what goes on and how how debates are framed in television. Yeah, yeah, that's part of what I mean is they're related to each other. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today you have a special Slate Plus segment coming because John and Emily were having an extremely boisterous, just uh, uh, extremely smart conversation before we started the show. And and they just it's because they are true public intellectuals, they're also private intellectuals, and they were engaged with each other around a really interesting topic involving separation of powers i think i was i was doing other things i was just doing clerical work um and so we decided uh because the tape was running we're going to do that as our slate plus conversation it's going to be it's a super treat so go to slate.com plus to get unadulterated dickerson Bazelon. katie hill freshman democratic member of congress from california resigned from the house this week after a strange and sad scandal involving workplace sexual misbehavior on her campaign, possibly in her congressional office, and then a revenge porn incident may have been orchestrated by her estranged husband or by a former girlfriend of hers. Emily, do you want to walk us through the basics of this, where, how we got where we are? Oh, Katie Hill. Yeah, this is a kind of sad saga, right? So um seems like confirmed that Katie Hill and her husband were having a relationship with a 22-year-old campaign staffer, which is not technically against the congressional rules, but seems to fall into the realm of, like, very questionable judgment, especially because there are texts suggesting that the staffer felt abused by this threesome relationship, and there were some you know, unpleasant parts of it that made her feel exploited. Okay, so that happened. You can think about that. Then there is this problem that Hill's ex-husband or her husband, who she's planning to divorce, at least according to Hill, um, let out into the world a whole bunch of sexualized pictures of, of Hill, which are out there, you know, without her consent. And that's very troubling because they've been used to humiliate her. And um, and that's, I mean, in my mind, like clearly really bad. And that would not be a reason to suggest that someone should resign from Congress. Then there's a third issue, which is that Hill's soon-to-be ex-husband has accused her of having an affair with a staffer on the Hill, separate person. And if that was true, that would violate congressional rules. You're not allowed to Um, as a member of Congress, have a sexual relationship with someone on your staff. But we don't know whether that's true, and Hill has denied it. So it's tricky because if the third box, if you could check it, 
like, yes, we knew that that affair had happened. That's clearly against the rules. There are all kinds of good reasons to have those rules. doesn't matter, in my mind, one whit that Hill is a woman and the staffer is a man instead of the usual scenario of the other way around. If we knew that to be true, then it would be really clear that Hill should resign. But we don't. And so then that leads me back to the initial um, set of accusations about this relationship with this 22-year-old female campaign staffer. And really, the question is whether that, in my mind, the question is, is that poor enough judgment on its own? Does it smack of, you know, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky in a way that's just like not okay? And so that's grounds for Hill to resign without the other parts of the story. And Actually, can I add a fourth element, which just came to light in the last couple of days, which is that it also appears that this is fundamentally a oppo research scandal in the sense that the person who wrote the story for Red State, the, the journalist who broke the story, was an advisor to consultant for Hill's Republican opponents. Not to say that the the facts in this are necessarily inaccurate. It, it does have an element of political hit job to it as well and using repurposing media for political purposes. Um, one quick definitional thing, Emily. The I was confused by – so in 2018, following the Me Too movement, the House of Representatives decides uh, there are going to be new rules that prohibit sexual relationships between members and their aides. That's clean. Okay. So – but we're talking here about a campaign aide. But the Post reported that the Ethics Committee had concluded that – <clears throat> that it did have jurisdiction over campaign stuff. Now, successful campaign, a su- successful a campaign. successful campaign. Right. Okay. Right. Because for the same reason, the ethics committee has no sway over somebody who resigns after they resign. It has no sway over defeated campaigns because they're not a member of Congress. But here's the question: I don't understand about the post is does does the fact that the ethics committee um, looks into campaign behavior um, uh, of successful candidates? You could imagine a situ- so that's fine. Let's imagine it's theft or something. Does that carry over to the coercive nature of a relationship? In other words, are th- is this claim that a coercive relationship with a working staffer in the Congress is the same as a coercive relationship in the campaign? I think we don't know the answer to that, but I there seems some lack of clarity there setting aside the point you made, which is that if she was having this affair that's been alleged that she denies with somebody who's existing on her staff, that is clearly a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that is that the Congress hasn't decided yet. Like, this is a new rule, and so they probably don't have a lot of examples yet to make that decision about whether their jurisdiction and also their standards are just coextensive in the campaign scenario. I mean, I kind of think they should be, right? I, they like, should be I, what? I'm, Sorry, I lost the predicate there. They should be the same. <laughs> like, I don't really see why you would have, like, the reason that you don't want a member of Congress to have an affair with a staff member is the power imbalance there. And the same, if not more, applies in the setting of a campaign where you have often a lot of really young people, you have, like, a much more tumultuous, a kind of un uh, tethered set of working relationships, like people are working all the time, they're in all kinds of informal um, situations with each other, that would seem, it seems to me that if the Rules Committee is going to say we have jurisdiction over campaigns, then you just want to have the same clean rule in that uh, setting as well. I'm a little nervous uh, about this. Right, right. Uh, you're, it's not well, wait a minute. What are you, well, why? I, I mean, I, I think it, it, the behavior is just as bad and possibly worse, but but she doesn't have the job yet. It's not how should Congress have jurisdiction over something 
that happened before this person is actually a member of Congress. Well, they've claimed jurisdiction no, over campaigns know. in other areas. So why would this be keeping Emily's good, good frame in mind? This is a question of jurisdiction and question of standards. If they've already said the jurisdiction uh, relates to campaigns, then why should the standard be different? I mean, I think that there could there could and be like crim- I mean, as, an EEOC complaint or criminal. If someone steals from a campaign, there should be criminal prosecution of that. But I don't know that that Congress. Is Congress entitled to police its members for things that they do before before they're members of the House? I guess it, maybe they are. Well, for things they do out of the House, I guess maybe. I mean, it's basically sexual harassment, right? And I guess I'm – what's the – what? so here's the, the upside of extending jurisdiction and having the same standard is that you're creating an incentive for someone running for Congress to behave with – care. Like, what do we lose from that? We're at, this is, you know, again, like Katie Hill, she's not going to jail. She is going to be fine, but she's about to lose her job. Like, that is not a happy event, but we, she was given this position of high honor and trust by the voters. So should someone aspiring to that job start inculcating a personal high standard of conduct before they get But I guess she's being punished by the public. She resigned before there was any official investigation. And so, so what why would I, I I certainly agree that if she did these acts, there is some punishment due to her and, and some public suffering due to her as a member of Congress and, and she abused a public trust in running for campaign. I guess what all I'm talking about is that is the right punishment mechanism, the House Ethics Committee sanctioning her or expelling her from Congress for something that she did before. It seems to me like, no, there's a there's been a, there's good public punishment that's happening. She's been disgraced and she has chosen to resign rather than face something more official. Well, presumably, really, I ha- would rather have her go through this due process than have Nancy Pelosi just pull the plug on her, which seems to be what happened. Sorry, John. Well, also, the House could take the public uh, <clears throat> shame into account when it made its ultimate uh, recommendation about whatever it evaluated her her behavior to have been. The the and they could say she's suffered enough and she can stay on and that's fine. I mean, but that's a determination for them to make because imagine there was no public opprobrium. So would that then mean the House does nothing? I think the the standard question goes this way, I think, and it's a version of what people hauled out when uh, they were talking about the the Russia matter with President Trump was – I think it was Hamilton who said basically how you come to office, if you do that in a corrupt way, it infects the office that you hold. And that's therefore, pretty good standard. So if that's the standard, then the House can say, well, what you have done after we've sifted through all the facts does or doesn't infect the office or you've infected a little bit. And so you've been censured and now you can continue being in the office. But we've cleansed it and we've made this determination on behalf of the body relative to the way you got into the office, I guess that's the way you would kind of work through how to apply a standard to something you were doing before you had the job. That makes sense to me. And the other thing is that the resigning before there's any the poison procedure. What? <laughs> I just said fruit of the poison tree. Fruit of the poison tree. Just, <laughs> just, to, give, just to make John happy. <laughs> uh, that's from the Fourth Amendment. You're dragging it into a different context entirely. Um, I, I guess the reason I wish that instead of just these um, 
abrupt resignations, and I'm thinking now of Al Franken's situation, I would like to have some procedure for the sake of the due process rights yeah. of the yeah. member, sure. yes, but yeah. also because, especially in this, well, actually in both situations, I would like it to be clear what the actual problem is, right? You have a swirl of accusations and problems. I do not want Katie Hill to be punished or to have to resign because of these photos. And so if she's done something wrong, let's like isolate it, make it clear what it is, and not have someone uh, feel like she's being punished for something that is like a terrible yeah. blow to inflict on her and deeply unfair. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting. We're human beings. Right. Not, not that yes. it shouldn't be interesting. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be what, Relevant what is case. magnetic to you. Or right. what, and you right. should I, – I mean, I have not looked at these photos. I haven't read the texts. I haven't, I haven't done any of the kind of due diligence about this because I feel like it's whatever. I wouldn't – if I were in the, the, on the other end of this, I wouldn't want people to do it to me. And I think it just is not – it is not – well, I read it's the not, text because I wanted to understand whether the relationship with the 22-year-old staffer seemed abusive or not. And it seemed like right. the only way to figure that out was to, like, read the evidence. I yes. didn't think Although, that looking at the photos was necessary for that. And I don't want to look at anything that smacks of revenge porn. So I didn't do that. But the, the text seemed like part of the case. Although, yeah, although the reason you have a case and the reason you adjudicate this in a, situ in a place where you can uh, kind of keep some of this at bay is that what people write – uh, the dishing people do through texts to each other and the claims they make about who's abusing who and for what can be, uh, you know, highly misleading. Yeah. Right. Because they they are in, it's in their interest to define the other person um, in as uh, horrible a terms as possible. Yeah. And so you would hope to kind of contextualize that in a, in a formal. A hundred percent. Good point. That's uh -huh. a really good point. Actually, I think I actually think John makes a very good point there. There's so people used text is much more like the kind of casual speech than it is like a formal document. And it would be terrible to be held to account for all the things, all like the kind of half thrown out, half tossed out remarks that one has made in life. And I agree. And, right. I mean, yeah. And so to 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 excavate, to to do a huge dig through the no doubt thousands and thousands and thousands of texts that someone has done and pick out and cherry pick the times when they've said things which were unfortunate or abusive or like you know reveal something is it's kind of gross and maybe we should maybe we should declare those to be almost off limits in the way that that i think you would declare or you would hope that that these photos are off limits or there's other forms of what are basically private casual communication should be you should look at them only in the most rarefied circumstances with a lot of guardrails around it to me what you're talking about or what makes sense to me is that trial by media is a big problem. This is another thing with having no process. Like if Congress was looking through the text and then deciding in context viewed as a whole whether there were abusive elements that were dispositive, that would be a lot better than like whatever happens to rain down on us from what Katie Hill's allegedly abusive soon-to-be ex-husband is leaking. Let's go to cocktail chatter when... You're, I don't know what you're doing when you're, when you're not looking at revenge porn, not reading other people's texts, just having a contemplative, contemplative cocktail, John Dickerson, this weekend. What are you going to be chattering about? Well, you know, we often uh, lament the things that aren't being um, covered as much while the madness of our 
age is uh, uh, has its all in its grip. This week, the National Assessment of Education Progress, um, uh, the nation's report card, the NAEP scores came out, and they um, and Emily will put con- this in context um, if I've oh, oh, freaked out about this too much. But two out of three children um, in America are not, uh, and these are fourth graders and eighth graders, are not proficient uh, in reading. Um, the numbers, um, which is you know awful. Um, the numbers for certain cities since 1990 have actually improved a little, but at about 2009, um, these uh, basically they plateau um, in the cities. Washington, D.C., actually, uh, the 27 uh, cities to participate uh, is actually doing – saw improvement in eighth grade reading. But um, – Basically, the the situation is getting worse since 2009, and there there are a number of troubling uh, lines in this uh, Times piece that where I learned all of this. But perhaps the most troubling line was there is no consensus among experts as to why. And so we see, obviously, two different kinds of responses from the Department of Education, which is to push charter schools. And then you've got the, the, the some of the discussion on the uh, presidential campaign trail with Democrats. Um, but it seems like that is a, a huge um, alarm bell. Emily, what is your chatter? I'm having a kind of um, handmaid's tale gloom and doom moment here reading about how Missouri is tracking the menstrual periods of women who visited an abortion clinic in Missouri. The state claims to be doing this to figure out how many abortions, quote, failed as a way of regulating um, this clinic. This is all supposed to be in the name of protecting women's health and um, making sure that abortion clinics are uh, safe places. But in reality, abortion is a much, much safer procedure than many other procedures that the state is not anything like this invasive about. And I mean, I just the idea of being a patient at a clinic and giving up this private medical information and then having it turn into some spreadsheet that state officials are picking their way through is just like utterly horrifying to me. And I just do not understand how this is where we've arrived. It's grotesque. I have two quick chatters. I was just going to do one. Then I remembered a second one. First is we didn't talk about the death of ISIS lady, ISIS leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, but there was a very interesting detail. Everyone's talking about these dogs, and there was a really interesting detail that I didn't know about dogs, which is that the dogs outrank their handlers, according to army regulations. The dogs are given, I mean, dogs don't have a rank, but but in army parlance and army tradition and army custom, the dogs are one rank higher than whoever handles them, and the idea is to prevent mistreatment. The idea is that the dog is the, sort of the superior officer and so that whoever's training them will treat them well. I doubt they mistreat their dogs anyway, but it's a it's a kind of interesting, odd tradition. So the, my other chatter is I saw a, a very interesting exhibit at the Kennedy Center this week. And the Kennedy Center has a new, in Washington, D.C., has a new arm. It's built an extension called The Reach, and it has exhibition space and performance space and classroom space. And they're inaugural exhibition is portraits by President George W. Bush of wounded warriors. It's called Portraits of Courage, a Commander-in-Chief's Tribute to America's Warriors. It's about 100 portraits that Bush has made over the years of uh, mostly men and a few women who were wounded in action, mostly in wars that the president himself started in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, It's plain. it's, it's, uh, It's up at the reach until November 15th. 
And it's pretty good. It's actually pretty good. His portraits are, they look like real people. They feel like real faces. You feel like you're seeing something in them. They're not the greatest portraits you've ever seen, but he has a real style and there's a real emotion to them. And um, it's good. It's it's like a, it's, you, you will get more out of it than you might get out of some other random exhibit. And, and there's also a kind of charming interview with Bush at the, at the start of it where he's quite funny. Um, so if you are in Washington in the next couple of weeks, I kind of recommend this. Yeah. That All was right. so uh... – Well, it was, it was surprising. I, you know, I kind of went on a lark. It was – I wanted to see the reach and it was what was playing. But it was – it's for real. It's for real. And it's, it's, a, it's a genuinely interesting project that he's undertaken. He's done it well. He's acquitted himself well. And it says something about these people and about America and about him. And, yeah, it's, it's, there's nothing, nothing but admiration for me there. Uh, listeners, you continue to send us great chatters. You tweet to us at, at Slate Gabfest, that which you are discussing at your cocktail parties. And this week... We have from Chris Anderson at, at Chris N. Hamp, a very funny uh, uh, listener chatter, which is a kind of a version of, I think we actually did an earlier version of something similar to this, but it's about uh, some eagles that were being tracked by Russia, migrating eagles. And these migrating eagles were flying all around Russia and the steppes and then they went south into Iran and they had these tracking devices on them. And what happened is when they went into Iran, these tracking devices suddenly racked up enormous roaming bills. So this, this reach, these researchers, suddenly they didn't expect their eagles to go that far. And so they didn't anticipate, they didn't pay whatever you need to pay to get on the Iranian, the Iranian cell network. And so they end up with these gigantic bills from these eagles that were constantly sending signals back about where they were in Iran. And it was about how they had to scramble to to pay off the bill and how they had to ask the mobile carrier to cut them a break. It's a very charming little story. So check it out on Engadget about migrating eagles. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Melissa Kaplan engineered here in D.C. and she's in an absolutely spectacular Halloween outfit. She is, she's Gentleman Jack and it's just, it's just such a treat to see her. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. I have no idea if Bridget is in costume. She's in costume as a brilliant researcher but that's not a costume that's her real life outfit gabriel roth is editorial director june thomas is managing producer of slate podcasts ryan mcavoy engineered emily in new haven i don't know if ryan's in costume you should follow us on twitter at at slate gabfest tweet chatter to us tweet conundrums to us with hashtag conundrum and come to our conundrum show on december 18th in oakland at the fox theater go to slate.com slash live for tickets for emily bazelon and for john dickerson i'm david plotz Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Uh, Unusual Slate Plus segment today. We had a whole segment planned, but then as we were getting ready to start the show, John and Emily fell into conversation and uh, while I was doing some other random thing, and their conversation was incredibly interesting. So at the end of it, we just said, why don't we make this our Slate Plus segment? So here you have unadulterated Dickerson Bazelon brain power. I have this piece that's closing tomorrow that has these various separation of powers framers thing in it. And the one thing I will say to you, which is so obvious, but I'd never thought about is this great quote 
where the Supreme Court says if they'd want, if the framers had wanted to prevent friction between the branches, they could have created three airtight departments, and they didn't. And I just had never really thought about that. That like, I mean, it's super obvious, but they overlap in all these ways, right? Yeah. So, and there's a there's like quotes from Madison about how we are saying that they're in each other's way. That's not his right. words, but I can find the quote for you. I mean, you probably have you, it. You mean separate and apart from amb- ambition uh, versus ambition, or yeah, there's one where he just says it's the separation um, of powers does not mean quote that these departments, meaning the branches, ought to mm-hmm. have no partial agency in or no control over the acts of each other. It's from the Federalist Papers. Yeah. And was that because by design or just post hoc rationalization for a bad? I mean, you have to go look, but it is by design, like in the sense that when you think about, I mean, there are all these examples once you start thinking about it, right? Impeachment is an example. Selecting, you know, advice and consent is an example, right? There are all these ways. Yeah. Well, because they wanted they wanted everybody to constrain everybody else by giving them a little bit of a foothold in the other's power. They right. thought that would be a check on the power. Precisely, which, yeah. it's part so of checks and balances. Yeah, exactly. Right. I just hadn't really thought of it in those terms. Somehow, I guess. And then, like, yeah. and then I was also I don't. I, this is another thing that I didn't end up writing about, but. The whole battle we've had since Watergate over how to investigate the president is about this. Can you have the first, the Independent Counsel Act puts part of the responsibility for choosing a special prosecutor with the judiciary. Then we decide the country, both parties decide like the special counsels are going too far. We don't want that anymore. And now it's back in the executive branch fully. And then that has problems too. Right. So what I'm, yeah, I mean, the whole reason I'm going back to the founders is is basically saying, you know, they thought long and hard about how much would be done by the system and how much would be governed by the virtue of the person in the office. Yes, you know, the difference that's between totally. the, the people who make the moralist case and those who make the institutionalist case. And both are you can't ha- you have to have a mix of both. And the problem is we've had maximalist presidents like our current one. Yes. Who I went and talked to a bunch of senators about this yesterday, and they're like, we never thought they would – I mean, the founders never thought that a president would jam his foot on the accelerator like this. The whole point of hiring somebody with a sufficient amount of virtue is that they would know when to pull back. There's this great section in the debate over the, at the Constitutional Convention where they basically say, you know, he, the president doesn't need a veto power because – if he realizes Congress really, really, really wants something, he'll stand back and recognize that, like, if they want it that much, they must be right. Right, which George Washington might have done. Right, but Um, I guess the other thing I wonder about, and you must be grappling with this, is that because the framers also weren't thinking about parties, and so they totally missed that dynamic, how can you even, all of these things just are different because of that. Everything is different because of that. Exactly. So they, they were like talking about the, the quaint rules of monogamy and turns out it was Babylon within basically one administration. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. They, when you think about originalism and whatever that actually means, they not only obviously were, they not only were awful with respect to the rights of humans with respect to slavery, right? But they completely missed and they were obsessed with ambition and power and and designing knaves. Obsessed, right? They were freaking out about it. And yet they missed that parties would be upon them within like five minutes. Yes. Right? That's crazy when you, yes. when you look at how completely obsessed they were about the, the absolute original sin of man and how that had to be guarded against 
in government or else. Yes. It's crazy that they missed that. I, I, yes. I kind of run by that quickly, but, but it's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. Now I, now I want to send you all the, all the, the founders' uh, we'll chapters. We'll send you whatever but, you would um, like. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.